0: Welcome to Discussions of Truth. Metallica intro sticking. It's been a few months with that. Good Wednesday to you. Good whatever day it is for you should you be re-listening to this program on Windwood Radio. It has been picked up in iTunes. It is also picked up on the brand new Google Podcasts. So, should you be re-listening to this? Keep re-listening and go back and re- listen to other episodes. Are you list- Should you be listening live on winwoodradio.com? Thanks for joining. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier, and I urge you to donate to the program. Should you understand kind of the crux of what's going on here and— To help you do that, you can uh, uh, reflect on a recent episode with former CIA agent Ray McGovern, who basically ended his episode or interview or his time, rather, with me by saying, Ian, what Americans need to know and realize is that it is essentially programs like yours, that are the last hope, or rather front line, of combating what he calls a not military-industrial complex, but rather a military-industrial-congressional-media complex. That coming from a man that spent 27 years in the CIA and has now had over five decades— in Washington. So let me kind of help you understand a perspective of logic and point of view to take when looking at the various subjects that are addressed on this program. I was just moments ago speaking of genealogy. If that's something that interests you, great. It's something that has interest me and does interest me. And The question that was posed to me recently was, do you have any German in you, Ian? And, oh, as a matter of fact, I don't see much German, but I have seen a lot of Danish. So there are a number of resources out there for you to kind of go back and look at where your tribal ancestry has walked prior to you. And mine, my last name is French, so certainly I have... French ancestry. My middle name is Hamilton. That's from my grandfather. I have Scottish ancestry. And my first name is Ian, which actually stems from Hebrew many, many, many years ago as E-O-N, E O N, but it's spelled I-A-N. That is the British version. I received that name from my British mother. If those are the types of things that interest you, then apply this concept to the very vague and crust logic of which I try to convey various topics. And the one today is banking. So if you were, for instance, a member of the aristocracy in England, that would be, uh, let's just say, the monarchy of the royal family. Do they know their lineage? Yes, they know their lineage. Are they happy they are in power? Yes, they are happy they are in power. Would they want to relinquish that power? Absolutely not. So if you were born into an aristocratic family, you don't want to only not relinquish any of that power. It's just like if you have developed an incredibly large company or corporation. You don't want it to go bankrupt. You want it to always stay in business. And you want your children either to not continue the business per se, but to always receive the benefits of the wealth that that business has uh, developed. There are wealthy families that transcend multiple generations, and they have stayed in power for multiple generations. So for a guy like Ray McGovern to spend five decades in Washington, how old is this country? 1776, what, 250 years old? So that's a fifth of the lifetime of this country, if I've got my math right. That's not a whole lot of time. What I mean is the 250 years isn't a whole lot of time. So relative relative to him understanding kind of the ins and outs of what's happening in D.C. today. He's probably got a pretty good idea. So this is nothing new. And if you follow me on Instagram, which is I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R, and if you want to make that donation, do so at I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R dot com. 50 cents is, goes a long way. Regardless, Let me run by a quote for you, and you can cross-reference if you want. I've done the same. Benjamin Franklin. So we're going back to that 1776 mark, and here he's saying, the colonies would gladly have borne the little tax on tea and other matters had it not been that England took away from the colonies their money. That was something called colonial scrip. S-C-R-I-P, I I believe. Franklin goes on to say, which created unemployment and dissatisfaction. The inability of colonists to get power to issue their own money permanently out of the hands of King George III of England at the time. And, Franklin says, and the international bankers. Hmm. Who and what is he talking about there? And plural. He concludes the quote as saying, was the prime reason for the Revolutionary War. How does that kind of sink in to you? To know that in 1776... One of the most prolific men that this country has ever seen, that the world has ever seen, Benjamin Franklin, is having an issue with international bankers. Hmm. 1915, Representative Louis T. McFadden, he had this to say. We have in this country, this is 1915, keep in mind the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law by Woodrow Wilson of, in 1913. So it's a couple of years after that was signed into law. And you can also go back and you can find that Wilson, as he's leaving office, lamented the fact that he had signed that into law. But McFadden, Representative McFadden, is quoted as saying, we have in this country one of the most corrupt institutions the world has ever known. I refer to the Federal Reserve Board. So, Ian, what is the Federal Reserve Board? What is the Federal Reserve? Is there anything federal about it? What is it? Who created it? Where does the stem fund from? Well, not only is it a central bank, but it's a private central bank. McFadden goes on to say, "This evil institution has impoverished the people of the United States and has practically bankrupted." Our government, 1915, about 100 years ago. So that would be twice what McGovern has spent in D.C. That makes sense? So it's really not that long ago. He concludes, it has done this through the corrupt practices of the moneyed vultures who control it. Let that resonate. What does that mean? And I'm going to go into one more quote, and then I'm going to go into a few guests that are uh, slated for the program, and then we'll bring on today's guest who will be talking about central bankers. So Charles A. Lindbergh, former United States congressman at the time of saying this in 1922, is known to say this. The financial system has been turned over to the Federal Reserve Board, The board administers the finance system by authority of a purely profiteering group. The system is private, conducted for the sole purpose of obtaining the greatest possible profits from the use of other people's money. That would be, America, that would be your taxes. Your taxes. Oh, boy. Should there be a box? That might be open here. Let's see. Okay, coming up, we've got Robert Bridge. He's an American investigative journalist living in Moscow. He's a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And his book, Midnight in the American Empire, is a harsh critic of U.S. foreign affair and policy. Bridge is the former editor-in-chief of Moscow News. He will be joining this program July 4th. Let me just uh, say, if you Google his book, it's noted as saying corporate America is no longer content doing what is what it does best, which is making money. These business behemoths are aggressive, aggressively attempting to control the entire economy, culture, and political realms of American life. And, he says, they have nearly succeeded. Hmm, what could he be talking about? Novus Ordo Seclorum? Don't know. We'll find out. Did I mention, if you've listened to me previously, that Daniel Estulin will be joining the program? He'll be talking about La Trastienda de Trump, his current book, Trump, Behind the Scenes. Uh, Let's see. uh, Peter Lance, five-time Emmy Award winner, and uh, currently running the website Investigating Trump. He's former guest on the program, two times. So if you go back into my archive and any of these things kind of resonate with you, please listen to some of these other episodes. And finally, introducing to you, coming on the program slated for August 15th, Gretchen Peters. She spent a large portion of her career dissecting the war in Afghanistan. Oh gosh, we've almost been in Afghanistan for two decades. Well, it's making somebody money. Is it making you money? <laughs> and, and is it accomplishing what it's set out to do? Which is what are they? Are, are is it the U.S. military in there to kind of harness uh, Al Qaeda? We got yeah. After two decades, you haven't been able to harness Al Qaeda. No. After two decades, perhaps there's not enough opium that's been harvested. Who knows? But anyway, Gretchen may have an idea. She's dissected the war in Afghanistan and is and its association with the heroin trade because yes. Opium produces heroin. She's a graduate of Harvard University and the University of Denver, Joseph Korbel School of International Studies. And prior to her current role as executive director of the Setau Project, Peter's worked for the Associated Press and ABC News. She's been nominated for an Emmy on her coverage of the assassination of Benazar Bhutto. Her most compelling work comes in form of the book Seeds of Terror. And that would relate to uh, her studies of the war of Afghanistan, quoted by Barron's as being well-written, well-documented, an exemplary work of journalism. She lectures for such departments as the State Department, the NSA, the Navy SEALs, the Pentagon, George Mason University. So we're lucky enough to have her join us in August. If you go to iantrache.com, you will find two former, well, two former papers uh, of, 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 of Peter's uh, that I've got links to. Uh, they are government sites. Uh, one is from the United States Institute of Peace, How Opium Profits the Taliban. And Allah, uh, Al-McCoy, who's been a former guest on this program, As uh, he got a, if, you, if you listen to this episode, he got a knock at his door as he had uh, written his thesis, his PhD thesis at Yale. Uh, the knock was coming from the CIA who wanted him to hand over uh, the, uh, the, the papers. Uh, see, he was to something they didn't like. Well, he took him to court and he, and, and, and he won. Uh, so, so that b- book that he has now, the politics of uh, uh, of heroin in Southeast Asia, now stands as pretty much a uh, the golden rule to to uh, to understanding uh, drug trade in that uh, in in that vicinity. Uh, the, the other paper that P- Peters has uh, that I have on my website that Peters has written is West Point's Combating Terrorism Center, the Hakani Hakani Network. Okay. Uh, that's uh that's that's uh, uh, about enough uh, here uh, again eantrache.com I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. t r o t t i r you're tuned into Windwood Radio I'll be back uh, momentarily with Nomi Prince Okay, and I am back. Uh, today we have on an incredible guest. She has spent time at Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns. She has written extensively about the banking system that we all kind of feed into. And to get a better idea of exactly uh, how to understand this, she has written a book called Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. We welcome to Winwood Radio. Nomi Prins. Thank you so much for having me on, Eden. It is a pleasure. Nomi, for listeners, please give, uh, give a little bit of background about uh, your, um, uh, your career, what, you, what you've done. I, I, I gave a rough layer there. Um, and then bring us up to, um, to, to what's brought you to writing uh, Collusion.
1: Um, sure, Ian, I'll, um, I'll do that. You, you, you did a great job with the sort of bullet points. But basically, I, I started my career um, out of college on Wall Street at Chase um, back in the day as a programmer and sort of went from there through really the world of different investment banks and commercial banks through to Lehman Brothers in New York to Bear Stearns in London, uh, where I actually created their analytics department for, for London and for Europe, um, and then came back to New York to... Uh, work in really the, the credit derivatives area, the part of Goldman Sachs that did the most kind of esoteric uh, creations of securities and uh sort of investment advice for the biggest corporate clients of the firm. So I kind of ran the gamut, at which point um, I became really disillusioned um, towards the end of that career. And as I wound up at Goldman Sachs with the way in which the industry had really uh, changed, it was never an industry of charity, but it certainly changed into something um adversarial to clients, I think, you know, in terms of uh, the types of products and ideas that were being pushed on clients, um, what I wanted to do on Wall Street, which was to um, really show the downside of trade, you know, sort of give people and clients a, an opportunity to, to consider um, all aspects of what they're about to do. And that was uh, more and more frowned upon in the business, um, because it wasn't necessarily the way in which the most money could be made in the, in the shortest period of time. Um, so around that time, it was about 9-11, actually, a while back now. Hmm. Um, I quit to become a journalist um, and and to work um, generally to, to inform the public governments and so forth throughout the world of what was going on inside Wall Street because there just weren't enough people um, I think who really understood the mechanics of Wall Street not just the mentality but just you know how things were created and and, and what um, what they meant and, and the wealth they could extract as well as uh, put in the hands of a select few um, and I wrote I wound up writing seven books <laughs> so not going through all of them but collusion really came out of of um, a major loop in my career which is I started out at Lehman Brothers talking with central banks around the world and I did the same thing at Bear um, when I was in London and, and central banks really used to just be kind of boring. There are institutions that were supposed to set rates, um, which they still do, they're supposed to regulate private banks which they do badly um, and they're supposed to just make sure that the system itself runs. and um, they failed miserably in doing that into the financial crisis of 2008, particularly the Federal Reserve in the United States, the U.S. central bank. Um, and so what I decided to do is, is really trace what's happened in these last 10 years um, vis-a-vis particular Fed and other central banks throughout the world um, in terms of the amount of money they've literally created. Um, I use the term conjured and things like it in collusion um, together to keep the private banking system, institutions like Goldman Sachs, like JP Morgan Chase, alive and kicking and subsidized um, at the expense of really rigging the markets, of really creating a, an artificial um, situation in which the few players at the top receive um, inordinate amounts of money from the central banks, and everyone else is sort of dealing with a, a very different component of the market in their own economic lives. And that's where collusion came from.
0: Fantastic. And, 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 uh let me let me let me throw this thought at you as I try to wrap around various uh kind of uh, definitions as to what the federal reserve system is and 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 how they compare to uh how it compares to wall Street and um yeah, private investment firms like like what you've worked for but the federal Reserve for instance is supposed to be to 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 average kind of To the average American taxpayer, um, nine to five worker, um, you know, hoping that, uh, hoping that their their police departments get paid and the fire department gets paid, Um, they're hoping that that or they're assuming that the Federal Reserve is a government regulated. That's U.S. government regulated system. To the best of your knowledge, is it is it a government regulated system or an organization?
1: No, actually, in reality, it's, it's, it's probably one of the least regulated organizations, uh, period, private or, or actually federal. I mean, it certainly has that name attached to it, the Federal Reserve, and, it, and it, um, its main body. It's basically made up of 12 components of a central bank system, the Federal Reserve uh, system, where the main one is located in Washington, D.C. You know, the people that run it hobnob with all the elites in government and so forth. And and the chairperson, um, the board of governors uh, chair, is appointed by the president of the United States. And there has been no time since the Fed was conceived by the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 where the appointee of the president, whether it was a Democrat or Republican, um, was not approved through the protocol by, by Congress. So, um, so there's a connection in terms of the people that are on the board of governors that run the Federal Reserve. And, and the term board is very important because it really connotes what the Federal Reserve is, which is, um, it's kind of like the company. It has a board of governors to kind of give it that sort of language of, of government. Um, but, but the board of governors are really people on the board of the Federal Reserve, which is effectively a, a member organization whereby the members are the private banks of the United States. And the way it was set up uh, to begin with was that the, and still the major private banks in the United States own shares um, in, in the Federal Reserve. So it's like people owning shares in, in, in a company, right? And the bigger the bank, the more shares they they own in the Federal Reserve. And so if you're JPMorgan Chase, you own more than you know, some local bank who might not even own any, um, you know, in Miami or so forth. So that's basically how it works. Um, and as a result of that, the, the idea that the Federal Reserve is also supposed to regulate these institutions gets a little fuzzy because these institutions are actually members of the Federal Reserve. So it's, it's very um, synergistic. And so when there's a crisis, uh, one of the things that the Federal Reserve is supposed to do is be the, the emergency lender of last resort. You know, it's like if you have a financial um, crash personally, or you, you, like, you know, let's say a child has it, they go to their parent. Um, in, in the case of uh, the banking system, if a private bank um, has a problem making its payments or um, is about to go bust or so forth as, as many more in the, in the onset of the financial crisis of 2008. The Federal Reserve is supposed to step in as that emergency lender of last resort um, and create a means by which the banks have access to more money than, than normal. They increase sort of the supply of that money to the private banks. And with that, the banks are supposed to heal, um, you know, fix themselves and sort of move on. And the Federal Reserve is supposed to, again, continue to be that regulator of the banks. No one regulates, back to the beginning of the question, that the Fed, there is no Limitation, there's no legal um, limit to how much, for example, the Fed can create in terms of a money supply to fulfill what they consider to be an emergency situation and to fulfill their role in that situation as the emergency lender of last resort. So there is no limitation. There's no auditing. It doesn't trade on an exchange like a public company, so people can't really see what it's doing um, exactly or have the ability to um, ask questions that would you know, make it more transparent. Um, so it really operates in sort of this, this dark, you know, sort of lines between a private company uh, being connected to Washington and physically present there, and working to really plenish money to the private banking system that are members of the Federal Reserve. So it's it's a very unique um, organization um, that that has a lot of pieces of of different kinds of organizations, but but are connected in a way that's very unique to to the Federal Reserve system.
0: And should is it safe to say that that listeners should um, question the motives behind those stockholders in the Federal Reserve Um, and, and, and go ahead?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Because and and there's there's two levels um, why why people should need to question this. One is um, that if these these members these these, these uh, shareholders in the Federal Reserve also happen to be beneficiaries of Federal Reserve policy, so that if they make mistakes or if they require emergency money, the Fed gives it to them because they're all really one institution. They're one sort of um conglomerate really of private banking and central banking in in one um place even though they operate in two different parts of the marketplace Um, you know that that that's a concern because what that means um is that private banks have kind of an incentive or at least a perverse incentive to um know that if they screw up, if they if they bet too much, as long as they have the right connections um, and can make the right argument as to why they might need money to help fix the problems that they create, the Federal Reserve will be there to do that. And not only that, because the Federal Reserve has this sort of aura, um, a narrative of being federal, of being for the people and so forth, even though that was not really how it was constructed and that's not really in the Federal Reserve Act, but um, that's kind of the, the narrative under which it operates. It seems as if the Federal Reserve is supposed to make the financial system stable so that the economy is rendered stable if banks screw up but but in practice um because banks are members they they receive money and they all sort of operate on on a sort of collective basis and the other reason why people should care about this um is because um for example as we've seen in the last 10 years um the Federal Reserve is one of its tools to help private banks um, get access to cheap money, money at basically 0% interest. Now, today, it's a little bit higher, but but for the most uh, most of the last uh, 10 years, it was at zero. That means that people get 0% on their savings accounts. And so even when rates have risen um, from December 2015 until now by almost two percentage points, uh, the amount of that banks, these biggest banks that receive all of this extra help from the Federal Reserve have provided to their own customers, um, for example, with savings accounts, is very, very minimal. Um, and so the Fed will, uh, you know, sort of raise or lower uh, interest rates to, to help um, the banks. They say it's to help um, inflation and, and, and sort of adjust other prices. But in reality, the banks are the ones with the access to the money at the cheapest levels. Um, and banks don't Give that sort of um, ability to their customers. It just means that people are really shafted in the process of banks getting helped, um, and them not even receiving as much interest on their own savings accounts with these banks as banks are receiving with um, some of the assets that they basically pledge to the Fed as part of the relationship with the Fed. So, so people are getting sort of the the short end of the stick, and that's why. Um, for many reasons, they should care about how the Fed operates and, and how non-transparent it, it it really is, despite public statements of what it does on a regular basis.
0: So it sounds, it sounds a little like an oxymoron. The average American is putting their hard-earned savings or money in a commercialized bank like a Wells Fargo or a Bank of America, but then they're also kind of feeding this reserve system and is it safe to say that their taxes rather than going into the u s. Treasury are perhaps going into uh, uh, building that federal reserve? Is there any link there?
1: well it's 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 kind of a link. it's 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 a bit circuitous because what happens is um as part of the structure of the Federal Reserve, banks are supposed to. Um, reserve money it's it's basically like paying for their own insurance right so there's they're, they're paying or they're pledging um, reserve money reserve capital to the federal reserve so it stays at the fed and in return um, in the last 10 years anyway the fed gives them interest on that capital they used to not give interest on that capital they used to basically retain it um retain those reserves in case there was an emergency they could use the bank's own reserve money their own money put aside for a rainy day or, or Difficult day, um, and use that to help the banks. But what's happened in the last ten years is that entire process has gone kind of haywire. Well the Federal Reserve has been creating money um, in far in excess to what's been reserved by the banks in order for the banks to have that money to use to um, you know become healthy to to buy their own stock and and to do lots of other things. And in the meantime, yeah, people um, don't receive those same sorts of benefits, and banks aren't required. Um, to to provide that to them. So if a bank's getting money cheaply from the Fed, um, and giving the Fed in return, you know, sort of cheap assets that they have that they want to get rid of, which is kind of what happens, um, and then they get the interest on that money, they, they do very well out of that sort of triangular arrangement. Um, whereas people, yes, from a taxpayer standpoint, they're they're feeding into the assets that the bank owns by providing them. Um, deposits, which in turn become loans, um, which banks use to basically grow their own business, but they're not getting really compensated. Um, For providing that collateral, that that capital to the banks, they're getting, you know, a quarter to like a third of a percent on on their money. And many people, not only are they getting very little on their money in interest, um, they're paying fees to these banks, you know, for example, if they're below a certain balance, um, or potentially for wiring money or for other types of services. So they're effectively paying banks to use their money, whereas banks are getting paid by the Fed to receive their money. Um, so, yes, um, you know, there is a way in which we're subsidizing this at the at the citizen level.
0: Yeah. Now, you spent some time in Mexico uh, as your lead up to collusion. What sort of things did you le- did you learn in Mexico?
1: Well, one of the things and one of the reasons I, I started in Mexico um, in, in Chapter um in, in collusion and, and went to other places in the world from there is because um, in tracing back the um, the events that were occurring in the beginning of the financial crisis um, what I discovered um, through interviews there and then you know sort of public information to um, you know so sort of validate them is that in the beginning of the crisis when Ben Bernanke um, who was the chairman of the Fed at the time um, the chair of the board of governors of the Fed at the time decided that he would um, embark upon this money creation um activity a scheme i call it um called quantitative easing which is just a wonky word to say we create money in order to give it to banks we receive assets they don't want to sell or cancel anyway in return and we pay them interest on it um you know when, when he started that um the head of the central bank of mexico at the time uh, a man named guillermo ortiz who um had been around in sort of the past when mexico had had real financial problems in 1994 they had something called the tequila crisis their currency was smacked their their banks were going under their their people were all disrupted and and he was involved in helping to um sort of build up from there and so he went to washington in the fall of 2008 and he had a meeting with ben bernanke and he said you know um i i see where this is going um and he kind of conveyed to bernanke that look you guys didn't do the best regulation you know they could have done going into this financial crisis but be that as it may um if you start to subsidize these banks and you don't pay attention to kind of instilling the confidence of of you know the american people in the banking system then at some point down the line that's gonna sort of you know come back to haunt you um i'm paraphrasing but but that's basically the one of the stories which i got from talking to one of the um Uh, people who had worked with Ortiz at the time um, who was retiring from the bank and who had basically seen, you know, this this story play out before. And and they were really trying to sort of um, warn the U.S. that uh, that this might not be the best, at some point, process to go by. Um, But as a result, Ben Bernanke, first of all, ignored him. Um, He ignored him, like, completely ignored him in his memoirs. He just just ignored that whole thing. it's like you went at willful, um, ignoring, (laughs) ignoring, ignoring. ignoring. Thank you. (laughs) Um, and, 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 and Ortiz, unfortunately, um, you know, he, he started to, to sort of sound the alarm throughout, um, Uh, Central America, Latin America, and and some of the Asian countries like China and so forth, they started to um, look at what the Fed was starting to create in terms of this fabricated money. Um, And they started to to be critical. Uh, As a result, Ortiz actually lost his um, position. He was not reappointed to to run the central bank because he had crossed um, Ben Bernanke at the time, um, even though he had... had, um, and then he went on sort of the speaking circuit, and um, he's, he's still an advisor to the Dallas Fed. I mean, these people do huh. sort of resurrect themselves, but yeah. but he, he really was taken out of that sort of elite position because he um, wanted to uh, maintain a policy from the Central Bank of Mexico that would help the economy of Mexico and the people of Mexico while it was being um, decimated by the financial crisis happening in the United States, and that didn't go over well politically um, in the United States and ultimately back to him. So one of the things I start to, to, to show in the book is, is, is sort of the ramifications of the people who, um, throughout the world, who, who you know over the years criticized, um, you know, not for the sheer hell of it, but you know, because they they assume that creating money would create asset bubbles, ultimately it would create instability. It might take a while, but that would happen. Um, and as a result, lost their positions of sort of the most power um, in the global central bank community because they didn't do um, what the Fed wanted them to do. And there's like a through line of that through through many different countries. But um, it was very apparent in Mexico because of the, you know, the types of individuals that were leading these institutions and what they tried to do, um, and how they, 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 you know, the ramifications for that.
0: So we're looking at a central bank. What are the pros and then what are the cons of a central bank? And uh, should a, should a bank be private or should it be public?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, a central bank, uh, you know if if it literally is is in a position where um, it does what it says, um, which is that it regulates, the banking system to an extent that criminal activity doesn't happen in such a way that it then slams the financial system. Well, that that would be a good example of what a central bank could do. They get centralized um, information from these banks. They know when they're, um, you know, low on, on reserves and there could be problems. And let's say they warn them and they receive more reserves. And if there's a problem, they work out ways for these banks to not, you know, take 10 years of help from the Fed, but, you know, some shorter period of time um, to, to potentially get over it and also help um, people that were hurt around the time that could be a good use of a central bank. Um, the problem is that that's not, um, that that's not really what happened. It's what practice, happened so, yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's not a practice. And so even when a central bank says, well, our, our mission is to, um, which ours, ours does, has a dual mandate um, to, to keep full employment and inflation or prices at, at sort of a check. Um, that's really kind of secondary to the fact that they produced a lot of money that happened to have gone into, um, mostly the stock market, and to infuse a lot of debt in, in the Treasury Department as well as um, in the bond markets throughout the world, and that ultimately this debt has to be repaid as does the government debt that was created in the last 10 years um, need to be repaid. And in that case, again, the, the central bank is um, in this position where it has no limitations on, on the money it creates, but the, but the ramifications of, of its policy um, could be very broad. And and I think in, in that scenario, the central bank is actually dangerous um, to the, their local economy to the global economy, and and should at the very least um, have have time or amount limitations on how they can help subsidize the private banking system. I mean, you know, there 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 is some credence to <laughs> the idea that if a private bank is, is is so extended that it can't function anymore, well, and it, and it did so under its own volition and it bet wrong and it you know and all that all of that using other people's money as collateral, um, well, maybe it shouldn't get to be as big, and maybe it shouldn't get to survive in that capacity, but that's not what the Federal Reserve, um, you know, sort of worked towards. It worked towards just sustaining um, and, in fact, making bigger uh, the the two big-to-fail banks that were at the center of of the financial crisis, and so, um, you know, they really overstepped um, even the the, the good that, that central banks could have done, I think, um, by acting as if the money they've created is somehow sustained economies, whereas in fact, you know, there's there's an exact correlation between what they've created um, and rises in the stock market to, to the day, you know, when they create more money, the stock market goes up, when less right. money, the stock market goes down. Um, And with all the fundamentals that we look at about companies in the stock market, the reality is the overriding factor in the last 10 years has been when um, the Federal Reserve or other major central banks um, create um, or announce they're going to create extra money um, into the system. And and that's really been how markets have been driven over the last 10 years.
0: Uh, Nomi, you spent time in London. Now, the financial center in London is perhaps the, if not one of the top three financial centers uh, globally. Uh, is the Federal Reserve system that we know it—that's uh, implemented in the United States—does does it consist, in your opinion, does it consist of international shareholders?
1: Um, it it's it's interesting because the the way in which private banks work today is a very codependent on each other, Um, and so, you know, they're almost, especially the larger ones, for example, Deutsche Bank, um, the largest bank in Germany, was one of the banks that the Federal Reserve helped um or subsidized back in the beginning of the financial crisis because it was connected and its positions were connected to you know big u.s banks like jp morgan chase or citigroup and so forth so from the standpoint of um our fed in particular the the international kind of reach that it has um, is quite wide so though these banks aren't necessarily members of the federal reserve in the same way a headquartered u.s bank would be members of the federal reserve um, they are sort of recipients of of the way in which the Federal Reserve works. Now, in London, um, the Bank of Engu- England works slightly differently from the Federal Reserve in that, first of all, it's 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 one entity um, instead of you know this idea of a reserve system where there's little pieces of the Fed throughout the United States, even though the main Fed um, is in the, in Washington, the second main Fed's in New York, um, and and the Bank of England head, um, unlike. In the United States, where it's appointed and then and then approved um, by our Congress, and in the UK, it's just simply appointed um, by whoever the Prime Minister is. And so, there's a more direct link um, into the government um, of, of the Bank of England relative to the to the government. So, so they do have. Um, you know a tighter connection into buying um, you know sort of UK government bonds and to helping um, UK banks some of which also are supported by the government um, in the UK especially in the wake of the financial crisis some of them were even sort of um, uh, nationalized to an extent by uh, the the government, um, by the UK government, and those were in turn subsidized by the Bank of England, whereas that didn't really happen um, in the United States. These are just, you know, really wonky semantics, but it's just to say that the different banks um, throughout the world operate slightly differently relative to their own country, but from a global perspective, the main central banks, the, the G7 central banks in particular, really adopted a similar policy. Um, which was to follow the Fed's policy throughout these past ten years, which was to create um, a lot of money to buy either government debt or other kinds of debt out of their system in order to provide it to to their private banks. And so the, the method was was pretty much the same. The amounts differed. I mean, the the Fed created four and a half trillion dollars worth of of money in in their quantitative easing programs. The Bank of England created like eight hundred billion, but I mean, it's a smaller country. Um, so net net though they they did similar things and and they did them. Um, they're timed in such a way, and I go through this in, in, in collusion, that, um, you know, they were timed in ways to help the markets. I helped the financial institutions in the markets um, when they most needed it, literally on days when they most needed it. In,
0: in your view, in, in your view, is, should, listeners, should listeners, to understand the power that the Federal Reserve has, um, A, do you feel that it should be audited, and B... Are there circumstances in which you would consider it being more powerful than the White House?
1: Um, That's it's really interesting question. I I definitely think it should be audited um, without a doubt. When I say audited, I don't I don't mean just they show a report of like where they have um, invested in certain different types of of, uh, assets. Like you know, we have so many Treasuries on our books. We have so many mortgage securities on our books, which which they do they do on a on a weekly basis. Um, But what audited from the real standpoint of how. Um, their members actually operate, what, what, what they get, what they use, um, and look at it as a real company, um, I definitely think that that's necessary. Um, it hasn't ever been done um, on that level. Um, it's been proposed over the years. I mean, it was most recently proposed by a sort of uh, contingent of, of Ron Paul and, and Bernie Sanders at one point um, in, in a number of years after the crisis, but it's never really um, taken off, and it is something that Congress could demand um, or even an act. Um, because they were the ones who basically gave the Fed the power to begin with um, in 1913. They just they just completely abdicate responsibility to the Fed. So going back to the other part of your question, um, is it more powerful than the White House? Um, the reality is that the White House, um, well, it has the Treasury Department to, to create money, um, and, and that money has a process. You know, when we borrow or create a bond or the Treasury Department creates a bond or borrows money, um, you know, from, from investors through the banking system um, – and and borrows money from other countries as well and so forth there's a process by which that happens um and it goes you know there's auctions there's times there's amounts it's all very sort of um streamlined and and has limits um whereas the federal reserve doesn't have limits um as to how much they they can decide to create in an emergency as they've done in these last 10 years so in that respect um you know, they, they stopped at $4.5 trillion. I mean, they equally could have stopped at $12 trillion. I mean, they, that's just, they just decided um, that that was how much money they thought was necessary. Um, and, and, and if you have that kind of power, um, and they utilized that kind of power in the last 10 years, that kind of power wasn't utilized to that extent beforehand. Um, that, that's really tremendous. The White House can't really do that. The White House has to go through Congress to allocate money and stuff to different um, areas of our budget, whereas the Fed just kind of created it. So, so from a financial perspective, it's actually
0: more powerful. Yep. Uh, have you, are you familiar with um, Ellen Brown? She ran for treasurer in the state of California a number of years ago, and she's written a book that actually is based off of a, pra- a banking practice that North, North Dakota has, uh, has adopted. And it, the, the, the title of the book is uh, basically uh, The Public Banking System. Are you familiar with Ellen Brown and that concept?
1: Um, well, yes, I'm actually familiar with Ellen Brown. We, we, we've spoken together um, in the past at different venues and um, as well with the public banking concept. And um, to summarize that and why that could be. Um, or should be really adopted throughout um, at the various state levels and potentially at the federal level, is the idea of a public bank is is really simple. It's not like a publicly subsidized bank. I, I've actually had conversations with Ellen about whether a different term could be used um, to to sort of broaden what 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 it really is is meant to be, which is a bank that um, provides through its uh, lending capacities um, loans or or financing for things that are required um, in terms of infrastructure development or, or jobs or so forth um, in the area in which it operates. So in North Dakota, um, for example, the the public banker um, of North Dakota was created actually in 1909, and it was created uh, a little bit before the Fed, but it, w- it was created for a very similar purpose to why the Fed was uh, promised to be created, but, but it actually served that purpose, which was that money was not coming into... North Dakota um, to the extent that they needed it from the big Eastern banks. So it was kind of, there had been a big crisis in in finance in 1907. There was a panic in New York. The Wall Street banks basically um, stopped lending. Um, throughout the rest of the country. They kind of kept it to themselves, which is very similar to what happened 100 years later. Um, But but North Dakota, as a result of that, said, you know what, we're going to just kind of take care of ourselves. Um, We have taxes here. We have revenues here. Um, Over the years, they've had oil revenues and so forth there. We're just going to take these receipts, and we're going to use them to finance a bank that will then give back to our state. Um, and as a result of that, they've actually uh, they performed, that bank has performed better and more consistently, um, and with less sort of ups and downs than a bank like JPMorgan Chase, um, because they've been able to manage their money for their own purposes. That you know they get it in and then they decide where it needs to be lent. Um, that's one of the reasons, for example, student loans um, are so reduced in the state of North Dakota because this the bank actually um, is able to provide loans at lower. Uh, Rates and in other places because it has revenues from the state to to basically back those loans with. Um, so that would be the idea of a public bank is to have those in areas where uh, receipts from the state or from a local uh, city or whatever are used to help collateralize a bank that runs as a bank. I mean, it doesn't have to act silly, <laughs> but you know, it decides what it finances based on you know practical decisions and analysis. But but it 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 doesn't decide, for example, to invest in you know, speculative trade as to I don't know how the Russian ruble is going to do relative to the euro or something. I mean, it just it works on what's what's in the community or in the in the vicinity of of where it operates.
0: Nomi, historically, you you, you mentioned 1907. Historically, would you would you say that as the United States has grown uh, 1776, uh, 250 years, roughly, has there have been collusion in place since the days of Alexander Hamilton is that something that the Republic has faced on a yearly basis is that something you can assess through your studies and research
1: well i mean it's it, it's it's uh, there's there's been different forms of, of collusion okay. there has always been a, a strong connection between um you know so the 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 wealthiest or most elite, you know, families or individuals running private banking institutions versus, you know, the people that run for office in in their uh, states or at the federal level. I mean, that's that's always been, um, you know, sort of part of our our republic to an extent. But but in terms of the infrastructure, in terms of how we're we're set up from from a um, official perspective, I think that that has gotten worse. Um, over the years. Actually, my last book, I go through uh, a real evolution of this where it really has a turning point in the 1970s um, when when private banks basically discover petrodollars and oil money, and they realize they don't even have to care what the government is doing so even though they have these elite connections they, they don't have to use them to benefit the us in particular they can just benefit their banks and everything kind of goes hey why are not i trace that uh, those relationships changing and, and, and the way in which banking changes um as a result uh, from the 70s on through today but then in the last 10 years again that's just gotten Worse, the, because the collusion is rather global. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we have now. There's there's a, there's a level of collusion between the central bank and the private banks, and then there's a level of collusion between central banks um, amongst each other, um, and so we have this this globalized uh, collusion, which is. Um, Hasn't not existed in the past. I mean, it was something that was used for different world wars and financing and so forth. But but not. But but there were the actual real reasons to to sort of fabricate money. Whereas now it's literally just to uh, subsidize a, a sort of out of whack private banking system. I, I
0: look at uh, I look at I look at the United Nations, and there's 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 an attempt, um, which is you know obviously to kind of stabilize. Uh, the different cultures and languages and whatever it may be uh, uh, globally. I mean, I, I'm i assuming that's kind of the overall objective with the United Nations. Um, in your view, should the United Nations attempt to uh, formulate a central bank?
1: Um, well, I think... <sighs> I think that, you know, in terms of it being financial versus um, sort of diplomatic, um, you know, there is a sort of um, element of not the United Nations, but sort of the globalized idea yeah. that with the, the IMF or the World Bank or so forth, which in their pure form, um, were are supposed to have looked at sort of the globe, um, you know, in the wake of World War II and decided based on you know, strong countries versus weaker countries, countries that you know needed to develop infrastructure and, and, and grow after they've been decimated by wars right. and so forth and figure out how to finance that and make decisions on how to equalize the world or at least keep, keep it stable. I mean, that was sort of the intent yeah. um, of those institutions. That's interesting right now because the IMF is actually very critical of, of what the Fed's doing of the debt that's been created and in, in sort of developing or the emerging markets because of these uh, quantitative easing processes. So I don't know that Necessarily, another major, major central sort of entity um, would be the answer. I, I think it's more that there there should be a regulating entity um, to at least um, you know sort of ensure that. If we do have central banks, that they're not simply creating funding for the private banking system, but there's there's an accountability um, aspect that they have to go to on the world stage, just like there's humanitarian um, accountabilities. There's no financial accountabilities for these institutions. There's no, um, well, I mean, there are centralized bodies for central banks, but they don't have that impact. Um, and I think having something like that would be very useful because the question would then be asked. Um, and it would be official, um, and there would be information, and requirement, accountability, responsibility to it. Um, why did you create all this money, and, and why did it go to JPMorgan Chase, and how come, um, or why did it go to Deutsche Bank and not to Greece, or whatever the questions might be, and, and, and make them actually answer these questions. I mean, I was when I was in the UK just recently. I was I was um, I was speaking at Parliament, and I was um, I was invited there by uh, the Shadow. Uh, secretary of the sort of industrial sector and and she she looks at you know real production and then technology and so forth and we're having this conversation about the central bank of England and how come they created all this money but you know it, it hasn't gone to right. actually you know sort of upgrading or building For the people, country yeah. and and I and I said to her yeah you got you know someone needs to make these people accountable to that um, the money was created like it needs to be diverted at this point at least
0: yeah Um. Uh, no, me. There's a, well, there's a twenty trillion dollar debt in this country. I, 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 I mean, it, 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 there's a, we're kind of getting short on time. I want to throw a few things out there. You can kind of maybe pick and choose from what you want. Uh, but the twenty trillion dollar debt in this in this country should Americans be alarmed at that? How 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 do you how would you envision them um, getting out of that? Uh, does it correlate to the Federal Reserve? In your view, um, is fractional reserve banking uh, an issue that Americans should be concerned about? And if and if and listeners aren't uh, aren't clear about what that is, um, it's 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 basically lending out a dollar and then uh, uh, the the recipient bank uh, having you know fractionating it ten times. Um, What and and then lastly, lastly, Nomi, uh, what is your overall goal with with this book? Where, Where would you like? Uh, it to go. How would you like it to affect uh, people?
1: Right. So, I mean, from the standpoint of, of how I like it to affect people, it is going opposite order. You know, I I I, did, I would like for people to just be more aware of, of how their their money and their use of money is dictated um, upon by uh, a, a set of uh, institutions and people that don't um, aren't accountable to them um, that aren't elected that are simply selected and appointed and that don't have to be transparent and have the ability to help who they want to help and and have no sort of responsibility to the overall country in the process and in fact create as a result um, inequality in, in our country and throughout the world as a process and people should learn that from the book and, and hopefully they'll get a sense of also just how the world works I mean I, I went around the world um, you know China Japan you know, throughout Europe Brazil so forth and just how um, we actually Are one one community, and and the central banking system is sort of a elite community above that. Um, in terms of the debt that's then created. you know, as a result of these very low interest rate policies, particularly amongst the developed or G7 countries that the um, sort of push of the Fed and the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and so forth, have these low to negative rates, Um, that impacts people um, in two ways. It impacts um, them by, again, not having the ability to save money and receive any interest on it. That that means anything. Um, But it also means that, you know, as you say, the United States has this mega debt, as do a lot of these other nations, um, which is much more than their GDP, or at least over 100 percent, times their GDP, which means we're not producing um, as much as we're borrowing. And, And what that means is that we're borrowing from the future um, wow. to produce less and less today. Um, and that, that should worry anybody who is planning on living into the future, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, who has children, who has grandchildren or whatever, because, you know, this is something that perpetuates at some point. Yeah. Uh, the reason that debt was created so cheaply was because the, the Fed and other central banks made, made it so cheap to borrow money. Um, but at some point you have to repay that money, and at some point rates will go up and it will be more expensive to service or repay that money. And then that's when we're going to see more and more things being cut. Um, from, from our budgets, whether it's state or federal budgets, to, to compensate uh, for repaying what we borrowed, um, as opposed to having built with it throughout the way and borrowed less.
0: Yeah, wonderfully said. Um, final, final words f- from you, final thoughts from you. Uh, what can the average American do? What, what can listeners do? <laughs>
1: Um, well, again, you know, besides, I think, you know, educate we are talk, talking talking it amongst, um, you know, your friends and so forth. I mean, it's it's not the sort of sexiest topic, but it is something that really impacts, you know, Federal Reserve does actually impact everyone's life a lot more than they, they think, and certainly their money, and I think it's yeah. important to know that and to, to discuss that. Um, and I think also just, like, little tiny things in your own financial life. I mean, um, you know, these, these banks are still, you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, giving people, like, nothing on their savings account, at least don't have... Uh, don't have your accounts at least your savings accounts with with these banks you know the banks that got less money from the federal reserve and help, um like some of the online banks and they don't give a lot of interest but they're giving like you know 1.65 to 1.9 versus you know 0.25 um and they don't have fees um so it's just a minor thing um people could you know make a lot more uh return on their own savings just by uh just by spending the time taking it out of their main bank and putting it into some of these ones it'll actually give it a little bit more interest.
0: So abolish the Federal Reserve or just tweak it? Um,
1: you know, I, I, I think at this point... Um, Tweaking is, is is not really strong enough. I mean, I think the Fed, the Federal Reserve, um, really needs to go back to its uh, to being a regulatory body, um, to not being able to just create money to save institutions that it is supposed to regulate. And if it, it can become a regulatory body, um, where there where it's really literally just there in emergencies, and it's literally just there um, to ensure that banks don't require all of this assistance for so many years in so many ways, um, then it could be useful. That's more than a tweak. That's that's like a full-on restructuring. Because that involves auditing, that involves um, what I think should be uh, appointing, uh, well, electing um, people who run the Federal Reserve rather than simply appointing them and making them more accountable um, to people because their policies actually
0: do affect everyone. Beautifully said, Nomi. Thank you for joining Winwood Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, Nomi Prinz. Thank you. And I will cut to a break and be right back at you with you to close this out. Nomi Prince, folks. Uh, I quit Wall Street and decided that it was time to talk more about what was going on inside it as it had changed. It had become far more sinister and far more dangerous. Yeah listening to winwoodradio.com. Sorry, cut that. That was a nice guitar. Going into a nice guitar there. Um, The Four Horsemen. Dean Henderson actually has been past guest on the program, and that is the title he chose. Big Blanks, Big Banks, Big Oil, The the Four Horsemen. Uh, That's archived, of course. Uh, I I want to re-mention that uh, this uh, this is now uploaded. uh, If you want to catch this, um please send it out to your friends family um, you, can, you can they can listen to it in iTunes they can now listen to it uh, in Google podcasts um, we are gratefully uh, uh, indebted to uh, uh winwood radio for um, for for uh, this platform uh, that we broadcast from that I broadcast from uh, every Wednesday nomi Prince is possibly best known for her book, All the President's Bankers, the hidden alliances that drive American power. Now, you have to listen attentively to the words that she says, but she's sending out a very loud and strong alarm. Um, she's well-composed, and she treads very lightly in the way that she says things. But by all means, don't sit back and rest on your laurels, folks. There is a major, pending, catastrophic change that could quite possibly be hitting the financial markets in the United States. If you are unable... To audit and open up the books of what these shareholders call a federal. Federal remains public. It's nothing public about it. And if you are unable to look into their undertakings, then you as an American citizen have. No way of gauging and applying your best economic minds to the tasks of avoiding, said Crash. I hope I've said that well, and I think that is a general message that is conveyed through Nomi's book that was just released, collusion. How central bankers rigged the world. And that would have been a good question to, to ask her to actually expand on that. But I think we get a pretty good general idea. She provided a plethora and a wealth of information. And we're g- very grateful to have her have joined us. Next week. June 27th, I will be right back here with you presenting Wolf Street. We're going to go into banking yet again, and this time with Wolf Richter, who's a financial analyst and economics commentator based in San Francisco. He's the founder and CEO of Wolf Street Corp, publisher of WolfStreet.com. July 4th, Independence Day, is when... We will be hosting Robert Bridge, who again is an investigative journalist. So Nomi went from banking, and you heard her say this, to becoming a journalist. So that right there should say a lot about the passion that drives her to help, understand, help people understand what's going on in a private central bank. And the most powerful one on this planet happens to be the one that you are subjected to as an American citizen, if you're listening in the United States, and that would be the Federal Reserve. Let me let me let me just go back and read this quote. Let me just go back and read this quote by Representative Lewis T. McFadden. Okay, actually, uh, we have in this country one of the most this is 1915 corrupt institutions the world has ever known. Has it changed much since? I refer to the Federal Reserve system, he conti- he says. This evil institution has impoverished the people of the United States and has practically bankrupted our government. It has done this through the corrupt practices of the moneyed vultures who control it. And i also repeat, Charles A. Lindbergh, former United States congressman, this is the same era, 1922. He said the financial system has been turned over to the Federal Reserve Board That board administers a financial system by authority of a purely profiteering group. The system is private, conducted for the sole purpose of obtaining the greatest possible profits from the use of other people's money. And that system, instituted in 1913 under Woodrow Wilson, is completely private. That means you, as an American citizen, as a taxpayer, as a person that has every inhumane, or excuse me, not inhumane, inalienable. Excuse me, (laughs) inalienable. The system itself would seem inhumane, but you would not be. Uh, Inalienable, right, to know exactly what's going on in it. Okay? Yet you don't. And yet we don't. So, uh, there we have it. Uh, Let me close out and continue with Robert Bridge. He's an American investigative journalist. He's going to July 4th again. Living in Moscow, a native of Pittsburgh, his book Midnight in the American Empire is a harsh critic of the United States Foreign Affairs and Policy, Bridges, a former editor-in-chief of the Moscow News. Again, I'm going to repeat the title of his book, Midnight in the American Empire. And by the way, geoengineering, yeah, it's really happening. Folks, Winwood Radio, I've been your host, as always, Wednesdays at five o'clock, Ian Hamilton, trojay Thank you for tuning in Check out IanTrottier.com. That's I-E-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. I I have all my past guests archived on, on, on the website. Subscribe to me on iTunes. Now you can subscribe to me on Google Podcasts. And I appreciate you tuning in. And until next week. Be awesome.